I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I actually think that poker has made me much better at relationships because you start learning to really pay attention to people, to what they're telling you, but also what they're not telling you, but what their bodies are telling you. You start really learning to read the nuances of other human beings because in poker, you make more money if you do it accurately. But in real life, I think it makes you a better friend, a better listener, a better conversationalist. Now it's not a money advantage, it's an emotional advantage that you're actually able to be more empathetic. You're actually able to see things from other people's point of view in a much better way. That's Maria Konnikova. She combined the advice of two of her scientific heroes, a game theorist and a psychologist, added some coaching from a poker maven, and became a poker champion. Along the way, she wrote a book, The Biggest Bluff, and it changed her life. Maria, this is so great that you could join me today. Your story is so interesting. You have a PhD in psychology. You're an award-winning writer. You decide to write a book about chance and how we make decisions. So you learn how to be a poker player. How does that work? Um, It was unexpected, (laughs) to say the least. Um, (laughs) I'm not someone who ever played poker or who was ever a poker fan at all. And if you had, if we were meeting five years ago and you said, you know what, Maria, in five years, you will have not only learned to play poker, but fallen in love with the game and spent some time on the professional poker circuit, I would have laughed and said, what a funny joke. You're, you're very humorous. Well, how much did you know about poker five years ago? Zero. Literally zero. Yeah. Did, did you know what beat what? Or did you nope. have to look it up? Nope. I didn't know what beat what. I didn't know the rules. I didn't know how many cards were in a deck of cards. <laughs> now, let me go from that to now. How much <laughs> money have you won playing poker? Um, a little over $300,000. <laughs> So, right, we have to pause while everybody rushes out to buy your book. (laughs) First of all, what got you so interested in chance? I went through a period of my life where a lot of chance went against me. Um, I had a year where it started off with some strange autoimmune condition that nobody could diagnose, but my body just became allergic to everything. And so I spent weeks where I actually couldn't even go outside. How, How long did this last? It lasted over six months. Um, and it then started tapering off a little bit, and eventually, probably within the year, it had s- somehow resolved itself, but we still don't know what it was. So so you were thinking things like, why me? How, how did I get chosen for this wonderful experience? <laughs> exactly. I wasn't thinking, why did I get chosen? I was more thinking, wow, we take so many things for granted we wake up every morning and we take for granted that everything is going okay. And we don't usually wake up every morning and say, I'm really lucky. I got to wake up and everyone I know is alive. Because around the same time when I was dealing with this, my grandmother died in just a freak accident. She fell in the middle of the night and hit her head. Just these things kept, they happened one after the other. And it, it just made me realize that We like to think we have a lot of control over things, and we have a lot of control over a lot of things, but there are a lot of big things that have to go our way that we don't actually 
have control over. And when they're on our side, we we tend to just take them for granted. We say, you know, I worked hard. I deserve this. We say all sorts of things to ourselves. We also got insanely lucky. And, and when we don't get lucky, that's when we really wake up to how powerful chance can be. And this really started preoccupying my mind. And I decided that I wanted to write about it. So it sounds like it's not so much chance that interested you as how much control we have in the face of all the chance that we are presented with. That's that's very well put. And it was it was both of them, but it it was it definitely was the limits of our control. So uh-huh. how do we how do we learn what is actually us and what isn't? And how do we learn to maximize, as as you so eloquently said, how do we learn to maximize the things that we do have agency over? How do we learn to make the most of our skill, given that there is so much chance in life? So I guess the uh, the knowledge of experts or the estimation of experts that poker is not so much a game of chance as skill was the place to look for the boundary between chance and control. That's exactly right. And I got the idea from John von Neumann, who was the father of game theory, one of the great polymaths of the 20th century, who loved poker. And I learned from reading his writing that poker was actually the inspiration for game theory, that this brilliant man who was one of the fathers of the computer, worked on the hydrogen bomb, you know, just a mind that was voracious, that in this game, he found something that he considered a perfect model for strategic decision-making in life. He said that real life isn't like chess, because chess is a game where there's always an answer. If you give me enough computing power, I can tell you the right move. And of course, he was working on the computer, so he figured out the way to get the computing power. He said, life isn't like that. You don't see all the pieces. You don't see the full board. He said something that really appealed to me. He said, real life consists of bluffing, of little tactics of deception, of trying to figure out what does this man think I mean to do. And that's what games are about in my theory. That just, that was so beautiful when I read it and it really intrigued me. And I said, wow, this is interesting. Let me, let me look at this poker thing. Let me actually figure out what von Neumann is talking about because this does sound like life. This does sound like what you do on a daily basis when you're making decisions based on incomplete information, based on things that you know, that you guess, that you think might be the case, but you're not 100% sure. And real life is probabilistic. It's not certain. You never know if you're right. You never know if you interpreted the information correctly. And the best thing that you can do is just do your best and make the best decision possible given this limited information. And then the outcome is going to be what it will be. And it will never be 100% certain that it will go your way. I don't know poker. I'm almost where you were uh, five years ago. But it, it sounds like you're not only trying to figure out what uh, A thinks you will do, but isn't there a little of what does A think B thinks C will do? Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the things that's so fascinating about it. I mean, if you if you think about it for too long, it's definitely going to break your brain because you think, okay, 
what does he know? What does he think I know? What does he think I know? He thinks <laughs> he knows <laughs> I know. You yeah, know, right. back and forth and back and forth in this endless recursive kind of iteration. And that's what makes it so fascinating, so endlessly complicated. And that's why No Limit Hold'em, which is the form of poker that I chose to play no and chose limit, to learn. No Limit Hold'em. What, that, that yeah, sounds, No sounds Limit very, Texas Hold'em. Sounds romantic. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, well, it c- comes from Texas, yeah. <laughs> um, so hence Texas Hold'em, and no limit because there's no limit to how much you can bet. You can bet it all. You can bet the house at any given point, oh, I see. which makes it a great analogy for life. And also, um, what I was going to say is it still hasn't been solved. So it's actually computers, AI have solved chess. They've solved Go. They've solved so many strategic games, and they have not been able to solve poker. And I think it's because of this human recursive element, because of the psychology, because there are so many minds involved. And you can never, you can sort of think that you know what humans are going to do, but you never really know that the algorithms are only as good as the inputs, as your best guesses, but then people can surprise you. So what do you have to put in your favor? You have... Do you odds, or is that knowing what the odds are to certain combinations of cards? Then I suppose that's part of it, huh? So the odds are, the mathematical element is definitely part of it. You have to learn that there are 52 <laughs> cards in the deck so that you can make your proper calculations, so that you can try to figure out, do I have the right odds? Do I have the right price to continue? But others, because it's a game of incomplete information, it's your best guess about what cards or what range of cards your opponents hold. And how do you get that information? Well, some of it has to do with the mathematics, but some of it has to do with psychology. And that's actually where my edge or my strong suit came in. I mean, math is not where I'm strongest. I last took a math class in high school. I'm, I count on my fingers to this day. <laughs> my, my mental math has improved a little bit, um, but I still use my fingers, um, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> so, so, I've learned to embrace so it. So how does psychology come in? How do you use that? So psychology teaches you about people and how to pay attention to people, how to pay attention to yourself, how to pay attention to the dynamics at the table. Everyone, you know, it's funny that I think one of the big myths or preconceptions about poker is that the way that psychology helps is that you can pick up on tells, you know, oh, he touches his right nostril whenever he's bluffing and his left eyebrow twitches and he looks this way and he looks... No, it's it's hardly ever that. Really? Yeah, people are usually pretty good at controlling their faces. I will I will give you a hint that you should be looking at people's hands instead of their faces because that's actually in how they handle chips and cards. They're not paying attention to that nearly as much. So it seems that how we execute things actually gives off more information than we think. And people aren't consciously aware of it, so you're not hiding it as much as you are where you're looking and how your jaw is and what your mouth is doing, things that we're used to controlling on a daily basis. But all of that said, that's a tiny, tiny part of the psychology. That's just what I was thinking. It sounds like if it gives you an edge, it gives you a slight edge. But something I read in your book was that 
any edge at all. A 2% edge can be a huge edge. That's exactly right. Something that I really didn't internalize at all until I started playing poker is that even 1% is a lot. Poker really brings that home because you're playing so many hands and you're playing so long that you see what it feels like and you see it happening. I mean, I've been in situations where I have been a 98% favorite to win a hand when the money went in, and I've lost. And it's happened more than once. So I know that that 2% happens, and it doesn't feel good, (laughs) but it happens. And so so you do want to pick up those edges. But I think that the bigger edge isn't just looking at the hands. It's really being aware of people and how they're reacting to things. I think, to me, one of the things that was really helpful was that The work I did as a graduate student was with Walter Michel, um, who was the marshmallow guy. He's a lovely man. I I loved him. I did, too. I dedicated my book to him. I was his final grad student. How would you describe the marshmallow test? So, basically, it consists of finding something that's very, very appealing to a little child, so a three-year-old or a four-year-old, and then you see how long will this child wait? You tell them, okay, I'm going to leave. And you can, at any point, you can ring this bell and eat your cookie or your marshmallow. Or you can wait for me to come back and you'll be able to get more. You'll be able to get much more than I'm giving you right now. And the main purpose of the study was to show, was to see how long will the child wait? How long are they able to delay gratification, to hold out? And what Walter found in study after study, and this was replicated all over the world, was that the length of time that a child was able to wait was highly predictive of a lot of measures later on in her life, of things like SAT scores and academic success and health and likelihood of graduating from college, likelihood of doing drugs. It went down if you waited for longer. So it turns out that delay of gratification ability is something that's incredibly important later in life. And what I loved about his work was he also showed that you could learn self-control and not be condemned to your original state of uh, gotta have it now. I'm so glad you point that out because a lot of people aren't aware of of that element. So yeah, you can actually teach those tools. You can teach the tools of self-control. You can teach the tools of delay of gratification. And to me, that's actually the most powerful thing about the study and the most inspiring. Um, it's very, it's very hopeful. It means that, you know, you can not only are you not condemned, but you really can succeed and improve if someone gives you the opportunity to do so, if someone helps you, if someone gives you those tools. So this sounds like it played some part in your learning to play poker, but there were other parts of Walter's work that meant something to you? So part of it was related to self-control because I'd actually worked a lot on self-control. And so I was able to see hot triggers in other people. I could see what tilted them. Tilt is a wonderful word from poker, not from Walter. Um, That means you're getting emotional. You're letting emotions into your decision process. You're on tilt. So you you can observe them tilting toward emotion? How do you observe it? So you you pay attention over a long period of time. So when you're not playing, you're looking at the other players. And I specifically, so Walter taught me to always look for the hot trigger condition. So find their marshmallow. And 
When you're playing poker, a lot of times that is when someone either wins a lot or loses a lot. That's a, something that's inherently emotional and that's going to make people react. So what I do is I try to observe people in those pivotal moments in order to be able to tell how does their thought process change as a result of this? Are they someone who, when they lose a lot of money, they suddenly start taking really stupid risks because they want to win it all back? Or are they someone who, on the other hand, becomes very, very conservative and very risk-averse because they don't want to lose even more? And so suddenly they're sitting there and they're not playing the way they should be. Both of those things aren't logical because what just happened isn't going to affect the cards the next hand. It's not going to affect how you should be playing moving on. And yet people still act that way. What about when they win big? People get excited. Are they ones who then start pushing their risks and saying, oh yeah, this is great. You know, I'm on a roll. I need to keep betting big. Or are they someone who says, you know what? Now I've won a lot. I'm going to just take a step back. I don't want to lose these chips that I've won the hard way. So I try to find moments like that and actually see how people are reacting so that I know when they're no longer thinking rationally, when they're no longer thinking optimally, when they're no longer looking at the numbers and are instead thinking about their, thinking with their emotions, thinking with their gut or their heart or whatever it is rather than with their brain. And the other part of Walter's work is actually not the marshmallow study, but what he did with his CAPS model. So that's the cognitive effective processing system. And what that meant was that every single person is always in a situation where there are lots of elements there's cognition, there's emotion, there are other people, and you have to have a behavioral signature. If this situation happens, then this person acts like that. So you have to identify if-then statements for everyone. What are their behavioral signatures? If this happens, then how do you react? How would that play out in a, in a particular moment? So, for instance, you know, if—and unfortunately this happens because— at a poker table, it's not like everyone is a saint. If this person insults me, then what? I'm going to start really being aggressive and betting much bigger than I should be betting because I'm mad and I want to. I want to show him who's boss. That that's one possibility. For me, it was actually the opposite. At the beginning, when I just started playing, I realized that I'd often let myself be bullied, which happened a lot. So poker is 97% male and only 3% female. So I would go for days and days and days without seeing another woman. And a lot of times, men didn't necessarily behave in the most gallant fashion because they didn't want me at the table. They, mm. I, what was I doing in the boys' club? And so a lot of times they'd bully me because they thought I was weak. And you know what? They were right because I would fold. I'd just step away because I didn't want conflict. I didn't want confrontation. I didn't want to deal with it. I said, you know what? You just take it. I, I, I don't want the money. And that's not a good way to play. That wasn't a rational decision. It was an emotional decision. Nor, on the other hand, was it the right way to play to react with more aggression than was called for. Exactly. Right? So how do you find the mean? That's that's the question. That's the golden question. How do you figure out what the best response is? And I think that that has to do with both a combination of a firm grasp of the mathematical strategy, which isn't complicated. Even someone like me who counts on her fingers can get it. It's it's just, you know, adding, subtracting, multiplying, dividing, and you can even take your time to do it. No one's going to yell at you if you're sitting there calculating. <laughs> 
And so that's part of it. And then the other part is understanding whether someone else is being irrational. Is this person bullying me because they think I'm weak? Well, in that case, I'm actually going to have to call down more often. I'm actually going to have to push back more often than math tells me to, because that means that he's bluffing more often. That means that he's more aggressive than he should be because he's letting that sort of thing play into his decision process. Is that person not betting enough because he actually wants to be a gentleman and doesn't take want to take my money? Um, in which <laughs> case, you know, that's a very different dynamic. That happened too. Once you, once you realize how people are reacting to you, how they're reacting to other people at the table, once you realize how they deviate from von Neumann's game theoretical strategy, once you see that, then you can figure out how do I adjust? How do I react? How do I need to adjust my strategy based on that so that I'm going to be winning the maximum amount as much of the time as possible? We're taking a short break from my conversation with Maria Konnikova. And when we come back, she tells me about a time when her own biases almost led to disaster at the poker table. And how sometimes the best bluffs are when we bluff ourselves. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on our virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Aldous Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. On December 14th, 2020, End Blindness will make history by awarding the first ever Sanford and Sue Greenberg Prize to End Blindness. Thirteen pioneering scientists will share $3 million in prizes for their groundbreaking scientific and medical contributions to end blindness permanently and universally. The Greenberg Prize Awards Ceremony, which will stream online, brings together luminaries from arts, sciences, entertainment, and politics, including Art Garfunkel, Margaret Atwood, Al Gore, Michael Bloomberg, and more. The award ceremony will also feature a moving tribute to the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a longtime supporter of the End Blindness movement, including extensive footage of Justice Ginsburg reading from Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, the memoir of End Blindness 2020 co-founder Sanford D. Greenberg. 
If you want to learn more about end blindness, you can read about it in Hello, Darkness, My Old Friend. And for a special treat, you can listen to the book read by Art Garfunkel. For more, go to SanfordGreenberg.com. Join us on December 14th, 2020 at 7 p.m. Eastern at www.endblindness2020.com to be a part of this historic moment. That's endblindness2020.com. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Maria Konnikova. What would be an example of you at the poker table reading somebody? Can you think of a moment when when you did a really good job at it or did a really bad job at it? What, what, what was going on? The moments that come to mind are usually the ones where I did a really, really bad job. <laughs> so, so this particular one, I think, is very illustrative because there was one moment, and this happened in Monte Carlo. Um, I, I got to be James Bond and go to Monte Carlo for a little while to play poker. And this new player came to the table. And I just, I saw him coming and I already had him pegged. He was this big guy. I mean, his biceps were probably bigger than my torso. And he had tattoos running down his arms and he had this tank top on and a shaved head. And he just sat down with his chips, with all these chips. And I thought, oh, you bully. I know exactly what you're like and I'm going to get you. I'm not going to let you aggressively bully me around. And so I ended up getting into this huge confrontation with him about 10 minutes after he sat down where I very aggressively bluffed and he ended up having one of the best hands ever, pocket queens, which is the third best starting hands. This what, all is, happened. what does that mean, pocket queens? It means he had two queens, um, so two, two cards that are queens as his whole cards, the private cards that no one sees. Uh-huh. And the best hand you could get are pocket aces, so two aces. The second best, pocket kings. And pocket queens is the third best. So it's a hand that you don't get very often, and it's very, very strong. And we were raising and re-raising each other before any other cards came out, and I was positive that he was bullying me, and he wasn't. He was actually incredibly strong, and he ended up, I ended up, lucking out. So this is one of those situations where I played horribly and ended up winning his chips because I hit a miracle card and <laughs> was able to win. So it was a bad decision. And then he left the table because I knocked him out of the tournament. And someone <sighs> next to me looked at me and said, are you insane? This is one of the most conservative players on the circuit. He never bluffs. And oh. I just thought, oops. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I guess my biases and my preconceptions um, did a number on me because I wasn't using, you know, I wasn't channeling my Walter Michelle. I was using all sorts of stereotypes instead of actual behavior. I had no data on this person. I didn't know if he was aggressive, but I saw those biceps and I saw those tattoos and I said, you're aggressive. <laughs> you're going to try to bully me. And he wasn't. That's such a good example of how our biases are not in our own self-interest. They defeat us just as much as they can hurt others. Absolutely. And it's so important to be aware of that and to be aware of your biases because every single person is biased. It's just the way that the mind works. But that doesn't mean you have to act on those biases. So having that initial preconception doesn't mean that 
it will make you act the way I acted. Instead, what I should have done was say, oh, you know, I'm taking these biceps and all of this as signs of aggression, but I don't actually know this person. I don't know anything about it. Let me put that aside and reserve judgment. Let me observe him. Let me see who he actually is. And then make come to a conclusion rather than acting right away and saying, oh, I know exactly who you are. What was there about von Neumann that was incomplete that you think your work with a top mentor in poker was able to make more complete for you? What did his theory tell us that you understand in a different way? Well, I think that one of the things that I've learned from psychology, it's that you learn very differently from experience than you do from description. So actually doing something teaches your mind something different from reading about it and learning about it in theory. And I could definitely not learn about game theory or about you know probabilities or any of the stuff from reading von Neumann because it went over my head. And also the human brain isn't meant to learn that way when it comes to statistics. We're horrible at probabilities. We're horrible at statistics. We don't understand them. Even statisticians don't understand them when it comes to real life, when it comes to implementing them. That's why it's so hard to communicate risk. That's why this is one of the big challenges of science communication. You know, how do you communicate uncertainty? How do you communicate risk? It's it's a question that psychologists ask over and over and over, and there's no good answer because people still will learn from what they do and what they experience and what people close to them experience as opposed to what the numbers say. And you can't beat the one with the other. But poker, when I started doing it myself, as opposed to reading about it in von Neumann's words, it actually teaches you by experience because you're playing these hands yourself and you're learning correctly. You're actually experiencing these probabilities correctly. You start to feel what 75% feels like, what 80% feels like, what 2% feels like. And so you're then able to take that into real life. This almost metacognitive goal of thinking about thinking, of figuring out how will this teach me to think better? How will this teach me to understand my own mind better and the minds of others better? So what happened when you took this away from the felt into the world? What, how, how did it really help you? What, what would be an, an example of, did you negotiate better? Did, did you, did you, were your relations with other people that had been murky and clouded before? Did they <laughs> get a little, did you know when to fold in an argument? <laughs> Yes. So actually, all of those things are true. I did learn to negotiate better. I hate negotiating, and I've never really been successful at it, except after I started playing poker, I realized some very, very important things for negotiation. One, that appearing strong and confident doesn't mean you actually have good cards. And (laughs) how you project yourself isn't what you necessarily have, which made me realize that I've probably been bluffed in a lot of negotiations without realizing it because I I always just took people at their word and said, oh, wow, you're very confident. You must really know more and be in a much stronger position than than I am. I fold. I step back. And I suddenly realized when uh, when observing good poker players that that this wasn't necessarily the case. And I was very proud of myself um, that I was able to negotiate a higher per word rate from a magazine than I ever had gotten before um, using some of my poker knowledge. (laughs) Well, how would that work? (laughs) Bring it back to their court so that you have the 
informational advantage. Poker really teaches you about the importance of informational advantage, that information really is power. And you want to act last. You don't want to act first. You want to see what they have to say so that you can respond to it rather than just putting all your cards out there. And so the editor came back to me and said, okay, well, what if we pay you more than we've offered in the past? Um, And so I, I thought, oh, this is really interesting. And I wrote, you know, I'm still not sure if it would be worthwhile for me. And then finally, I got just an offer of $3 a word which as a writer, I was very, very happy to accept. And so I wrote my first article for this publication. That's so interesting. (laughs) It literally is using what you learned at the table, isn't it? It is, literally, quite literally. And it's it's something that I've found in a lot of other areas. So then after negotiation, you asked about relationships. And I actually think that poker has made me much better at relationships because what you and I were talking about, paying attention to players to see how they're deviating and how things are affecting them, well, you start learning to really pay attention to people, to what they're telling you, but also what they're not telling you, but what their bodies are telling you. You know, are they comfortable? Are they not comfortable? Are they stressed? Are they excited? You start really learning to read the nuances of other human beings because in poker, you make more money if you do it accurately. (laughs) But in real life, I think it makes you a better friend, a better listener, a better conversationalist, someone who's actually more attentive and Now it's not a money advantage, it's an emotional advantage that you're actually able to be more empathetic. You're actually able to see things from other people's point of view. You're looking for the bluff in the poker table, at the poker table. You're not necessarily looking for the bluff from a friend telling you a story, but you're looking for what's behind the story, just as you're looking for what's behind the bet or the way the player passes to you. That's absolutely right. And I actually think that as an actor, you'd be, you'd be very good at this because you're aware of how much we communicate with nonverbal, with nonverbal cues, with how we stand, how we act, what we do, as opposed to just what we say. I mean, I can't act. I've never tried, but I, I assume that a lot of your training and a lot of what you do involves that. And so you're probably actually much better at being able to spot those kinds of nonverbal cues in other people um, than most civilians who've never had to do that. Well, yeah, actually that's the basis of the training that we do when we teach communication is to become aware of what's going on in the other person. And if that other person is the person you're trying to communicate with, You have to know how they're responding to what you're saying. The book is called The Biggest Bluff. What's the biggest bluff? What does that mean? So the book title um, isn't actually about a bluff at the poker table. It's a bluff to ourselves. Um, It's about a bluff that we have to make in order to live life and live it well. And... The biggest bluff is that we have to first realize that there's so much chance to life. There's so much variance. There's so much noise. There's so much stuff that happens that's outside of our control. We have to acknowledge that. And then we have to bluff to ourselves and tell ourselves that we have more control over our lives than we actually do in order to 
go forward and make good decisions and be good people, be hopeful people who want to make the world a better place and who are capable of doing that, who are capable of being better versions of themselves. But I do think that that requires a little bit of a bluff to ourselves. It sounds like it's not a good bet to see the world of chance and think it's infinite chance with no no sense of control. No, it's not. Not a good bet at all. That it's a better bet to make on yourself. I agree. That I have some control and I'm going to work from there. Exactly. I have some control and by God, I'm going to maximize it. I'm going to do my damnedest to, to do the best I can and to be the best I can. Well, I'm so glad we talked. Now I don't have to learn poker to be able to do that. <laughs> That's the idea. That's the idea. <laughs> okay. Before we go, our time is running out. Before we go, we always end our talks with seven quick questions. That it, They're roughly about communication okay. in, in, in a weird way. Uh, but they're, they're not embarrassing questions. I think you'll have fun with them. All right. What do you wish you really understood? <laughs> I wish I really understood myself. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a good start. It's funny because I always, I want to know who I am because it keeps changing. And I think I understand myself. And then a year later, I'll look back and say, I didn't understand me at all. And I didn't understand what I was all about. Now this is me. And it just, it goes to show how, how much we're always changing and how complex the human mind is. So what that really means is I want to understand the human mind. <laughs> okay, question number two. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I think that that's, a, that's an excellent question, and you can't phrase it that way. You can't say you're wrong because that right away puts people on the defensive, and you run the risk of then having them just shut down completely and not listen to anything you're saying. And what we know is when people are in that sort of defensive stance— um, facts will actually make them double down on what they already believe mm. rather than change their minds. So the facts then are not going to be persuasive. Instead, they'll find them as ways to turn them against you and say, no, see, see, you're the biased one. See, I'm the one who who's right. And so I think you need to learn how to speak their language and come from where they're coming from. Basically, you, st you try to work with their principles and their vision of the world and step-by-step step pick apart those bricks, but using their words, using their mm -hmm. language, not being condescending, not saying you're stupid, you're evil, you're wrong. Instead saying, I understand, you know, here I am with you. But have you ever thought about this? And have you ever thought about that? Coming from a place of compassion and coming from a place of equality. And I think that that's actually a lesson that we can learn Um when we're trying to tell anyone that they're wrong. Because to them, they're not wrong, you're wrong. Mm. Next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> wow, the strangest question anyone has ever asked me, other than this one. <laughs> yes, if you can. <laughs> um. Well, it would probably have to be questions about my background. So sometimes I was born in Moscow when it was uh, still the Soviet Union, and a lot of people don't know their history very well. And so they'll ask me things like, so like, what was it like to live under Stalin? <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> you 
put your hand on their shoulder and say, you know what? I have something really interesting that I'd like to show you. Why don't we go and look at this work of art? Or or better yet, why don't we go and eat this wonderful food? Because someone who's talking compulsively, if they're eating, they can't talk. <laughs> That's very practical. <laughs> Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a real conversation with that person? Start trying to ask questions where you actually learn about who this person is. Actually, one of the closest friendships I now have came from a girl who I met at a dinner party where we weren't allowed to say our names Mm. and we weren't allowed to say what we do. Um, And the idea was to just learn about people. And so she and I just ended up connecting and loving each other and becoming close friends. And I don't know if that ever would have happened in other circumstances. Uh, Okay, next to last question. What gives you confidence? What gives me confidence is being, is knowing I'm supportive, supported, knowing that I can fail. Um, I'm so lucky that I grew up with parents who said, we don't care who, what you do. We don't care what career you choose. We just want you to be happy. And sure, we can't support you financially. We'd just come here as political refugees. We didn't have a lot of money um, when I was growing up. But we'll always be there for you emotionally. And if the worst happens and you fail at what you're doing, we can't give you money, but you can always come home. You always have a place to come with us. I think that that's such a lucky thing. It made me able to take risks to say, I'm going to be a writer, even though I don't know anyone in New York and I don't know anyone in the writing world. And I have no idea how difficult this is going to be. And I'm going to end up being a struggling bartender in the West Village and a cliche out of a movie instead of instead of an actual writer for a while. Um, that all happened. But I knew that if worst came to worst, I was it was okay. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? A lot of books changed my life, but the book that probably changed my life earliest on was The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. It was a book that I first read in Russian. My mom actually read it to me. Um, And then I read by myself in English and later in French. And I've reread that book so many times. I mean, I have multiple copies and they're all tattered and the covers are tattered from how often I've read it. It's just such a powerful lesson in how to be, how to live a good life, how to be a good person, how to be creative, how to be open-minded, how to always retain your inner child and be curious and be someone who's accepting. And it's a book that makes me cry every time I read it, even right now to this day. Um, And I always get something new out of it. Thank you so much for sharing this time with me. I had a great time talking with you. Thank you so much, Alan. It's been an honor and and an absolute pleasure. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alder Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Maria Konnikova's recent book is The Biggest Bluff. 
Her previous books, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes, and The Confidence Game, also became bestsellers. You can keep up with Maria on her website, mariakonnikova.com, and you can follow her on Twitter at mkonnikova. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with famed trumpet player Wynton Marsalis about his latest project, an exhilarating blend of jazz and biting social commentary titled The Ever-Funky Lowdown. Music nurtures the realm of the invisible. All of your internal life is nurtured by music when it's music of quality. Beethoven Symphony, Mahler Symphony, Shostakovich, Duke Ellington, and listening to that, it's nurturing. It's like you're putting the most nutritious nutrients on a plant. And that's what we need in our nation, you know. Wynton Marsalis, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>